Welcome to the History of the Saints podcast. My name is Glenn Rawson, series host. What you are about to listen to is an episode about the documentary history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This episode is one of more than 250 presentations from 1805 and the birth of Joseph Smith the Prophet through 1877 and the death of Brigham Young. This series interviews some of the finest scholars of our time and presents the latest in historical research and facts as it relates to early Latter-day Saint history. And it comes from the long-running, highly acclaimed television documentary series, History of the Saints. If you have a desire to learn the history in depth and detail, then this podcast is for you. Thank you for joining us. It's incredible. Stadiums full would come to hear John Wesley. 85 to 100,000 people to hear John Wesley preach. He'll go to where the people are with his Bible and bring a consciousness of the Bible like no one had ever done before in England. Do you understand what I mean by the rise of the Bible into the hands of the common people? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given. That simple verse of scripture from the book of James in the Bible profoundly affected Joseph Smith, and it started something that indisputably changed the world. Now, it might be assumed that the Bible had always been there in English, or that somehow everyone in frontier America in 1820 had one in their home. But neither was the case. This episode of History of the Saints tells the story of the coming forth of the Bible in English and its spread throughout the world, especially to take its place in the Restoration. The Bible was written in the languages of ordinary people. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, which was the language that literate ancient Israelites were able to read. It was the language of everyday speech. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which means common Greek. It was the common Greek of the period in which the New Testament was written. And the form of the New Testament's writing was in very common, everyday kind of speech. And so we have to say that the Bible's intent originally, from its original authors, was such that people could understand it in their own languages and be able to read it if they had access to it. Later on, when a large population of Jews found themselves in non-Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking places like Egypt, they needed the Bible in their own language. And so in the 3rd century and 2nd century AD, the, what we call the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And that Greek translation is called the Septuagint. By the 5th century, most Christians spoke Latin. So again, the Bible was translated into the vulgar or the common language of the day, that being Latin. That version of the Bible was called 
the Latin Vulgate. But as Latin over the course of the centuries became more or less a dead language, except for in the church and among academics, the common Bible, the Latin Vulgate, was no longer in the language the common people spoke. But instead of translating it into new languages, the church came to the belief in the Middle Ages that this was a good thing, and access to the Bible was something that was controlled by priests and academics who actually knew Latin. It's hard in our generation for us to understand why the church would not allow access to the Bible. But over the course of centuries, the philosophy developed that the Bible was something that lay people couldn't be trusted with. And the issue, perhaps, was power. The power over the people who controlled the text over the lives of the people who didn't have the text. And throughout this time, there was yearning on the part of some people for the Bible to be published into vernacular languages, that is, in the languages of, of common people. Wycliffe is called the morning star of the Reformation, the first one, really, who begins to see the value of the Bible being in the hands of many people. Because he believed that the Bible should be the guide for church and state and uh, lay people, he concluded that it ought to be in the language of the common people. And so he, with the number of friends, undertook to translate the Bible into the English language, which they did. There's no question that Wycliffe's efforts on the Bible are well received by many, especially in the intellectual community, because it gives them a chance to be able to read it in their own language, to be able to study it free of church interference. And there's, that's one of the reasons why Wycliffe is called the morning star, because it begins to give light to the Holy Bible, to many, many people, humanists, scholars, and commoners. Wycliffe Bibles, or portions of Wycliffe Bibles, were passed around uh, quite extensively in the underground. Why in the underground? Because it was illegal for the Bible to be translated into English. And the laws making it illegal to translate into English became even more stringent after Wycliffe's time. In fact, a few decades after he died, his bones were exhumed and he was burned, and then his ashes were dumped into the river. And so the establishment in England in that time wanted to make sure that Wycliffe's influence would die. Did it die? Not by any means. It uh, continued on in later generations. There is no way that one could overestimate the impact of Johannes Gutenberg on the history of the world. Gutenberg's invention of movable type and the printing press is one of the great events in all of human history. Its impact is such that within just a few decades of his lifetime, tens of thousands of books and other materials were in print. Within a few decades after that, millions of books had been printed. The first thing he printed, of course, was the Bible. And that was his intent, to produce a high-end Bible that could be marketed to the people who had Bibles, uh, which was mostly monasteries and churches. 
William Tyndale is the most important person in the history of the English Bible. Tyndale does several things for which we need to remember him. He is the first person to translate the Bible, or at least significant portions of the Bible, the New Testament and a good part of the Old Testament, into English from the original Greek and Hebrew languages. There had been earlier English translations before Tyndale, but they had all been based on the Latin Vulgate, which was not a good translation. Resurrection, for example, didn't really mean getting a physical body back, as Latter-day Saints understand it today. It was the next life, or life after life, or life in heaven, or something like that. That was resurrection. It was all allegory. We've got to not take the Bible literally uh, that will lead to error. We just got to try to find kind of the hidden meanings behind the allegories. And Tyndale says, no, uh, we're not, we're not going to do that here. Um, I want to translate this to say what it says in the languages that it was written in. It's not just a translation from better documents, but he insists on an entire new mindset regarding the scriptures, that we take them very literally. Tyndale is the first one to make it very clear that English can carry as much meaning and as much theological freight as Latin could. In fact, they could carry more. Also, his English uh, is very good. He was a master of English. Um, he wasn't afraid to coin new words uh, in order to convey the idea that he wanted to. So words that you and I probably take for granted, like Jehovah, comes from Tyndale. Atonement, as significant as that is to Latter-day Saints, it was Tyndale who coined that. This idea of through true repentance, you become at one with God, you reconcile with God, and you are at one. His view was to produce a Bible that, as he said, every plowboy in England could read and could learn from. He was also inspired by the same thing that inspired the prophet Nephi in the Book of Mormon, that is the desire to have the word of the Lord in plainness. And so his translations were done in very plain speech. It's significant. Uh, you find uh, Joseph Smith speaking in Nauvoo, talking about uh, interpreting the scriptures. And in one of his discourses, he says, uh, my secret is I don't interpret them at all. I, I read what they say and I go with what they say. And you see a real uh, kinship, uh, I think, of spirit and approach between Joseph Smith and William Tyndale uh, in that way. Tyndale wanted his Bible to be disseminated as widely as possible to average ordinary people. So his translations were done as small and as inexpensively as he could make them. Notwithstanding Tyndale's passion for this work, it was illegal. Therefore, much of his work was done on the continent to escape the authorities in England. Tyndale was finally captured in Belgium. He was imprisoned for a long time. 
He was strangled to death and he was burned at the stake for heresy. According to a contemporary, Tyndale's last words while he was being executed were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. The King of England at the time was King Henry VIII. What Tyndale didn't know at the time of his execution was that King Henry VIII already had decided to allow for the publication of a Bible in English, which was the intent of Tyndale's request, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Now that a Bible in English was sanctioned, there would follow in succeeding decades various English translations, such as the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, and finally the Bishop's Bible. But for one reason or another, each of these didn't quite measure up. Then came King James I of England. King James himself was kind of an amateur Bible scholar on his own right. And so he determined to put together a translation of the Bible carefully under the scrutiny of the Church of England that would meet the needs of a growing and diverse church. The King James translators divided up among this committee of 50 or so people different sections of the Bible, and they went through and scrutinized every verse. The circumstances were so different from how they had been in Tyndale's experience and the experience of some of the others. And because of that, the King James translation of all of these English translations is the most carefully and systematically done. With the Reformation going now, it's okay to have an English Bible based on the Greek, the Hebrew. And so his translators sit down with those ancient languages, but they also sit down with earlier translations just to see how other people did it. And they were they had a they had a Tyndale's translation in front of them, and a good part of the time, um, maybe in the neighborhood of eighty percent of the time or so, they would they would read a passage. They would say, "What does Tyndale do with this?" And they would say, "We like what Tyndale did." and they would keep it. But sadly, they never mentioned the name of William Tyndale, who was the real author of the work, and who still was looked upon as a radical of some sort by some people, even in that generation. Even though I think that the translators themselves probably knew very clearly the great debt that their work uh, had to the work of William Tyndale. It took time. But the King James Bible eventually would come forth out of obscurity and become not only the most popular English Bible of all time, but the most widely read book in the English language. Thanks in large part to men such as John Wesley. When I speak about the rise of the Bible, putting it into the hands and the understanding of the common people, in England that's going to be John Wesley and the magnificent Methodist revivals of the mid to late 1700s in which John Wesley gave 56,000 sermons. It's incredible. Stadiums full would come to hear John Wesley. 85 to 100,000 people to hear John Wesley preach. He'll go to where the people are with his Bible and bring a consciousness of the Bible like no one had ever done before in England. In the first and second great awakenings in America, oh, so much to that, at least the second great awakening does, to George Wakefield and John Wesley's work in England. Those Methodist revivals are incredibly powerful and to raise the consciousness of most people to what the Bible's really saying. We finally see in 1804 the establishment of the British Foreign Bible Society in London, England, and it will be on the backs of the British 
Foreign Bible Society that the Bible would be disseminated worldwide as never before. We're talking not just tens of millions of copies, hundreds of millions of copies of the Bible or excerpts of the Bible. And the rise of the British Foreign Tract Societies. And as the British Empire moves across the world, the Bible goes on board the Navy in its dissemination throughout the known world. The British Foreign Bible Societies work in raising the consciousness of the Bible in the minds of most commoners is one of the greatest stories of modern Christianity. A few years back, History of the Saints began production of seven seasons of a documentary television series titled History of the Saints. Season one, Foundations of the Restoration. Season two, Joseph Smith's Kirtland. Season three, From Pentecost to Persecution, the Missouri Years. And season four, Joseph Smith's Nauvoo. Then three more seasons telling the story of Brigham Young and the Saints, beginning with the Nauvoo Exodus in 1846, titled Gathering to the West. Then Building Zion. And finally, the kingdom endures. Altogether, over 100 hours of Latter-day Saint pioneer history. For these and all of History of the Saints books and DVD products, visit us at historyofthesaints.org. It's the American Bible Society that begins in 1814, Philadelphia, right in the wake of the BFBS, the British Foreign Bible Society, that will disseminate the Bible in America as never before. And that's 1814, six years before the first vision. And more and more people are receiving the Bible in their own hands because they can now afford it. A fascinating chapter in the story of the Bible Societies, both the British Foreign Bible Society and the American Bible Society, is the way it was disseminated. It was carried into the homes of individuals by, they were called cold porters, people who would come and actually knock on your door and try to sell you a Bible for, a, for the most modest amount of money. In 1820, a Bible that would once cost a day's wages to buy, that's how expensive a Bible was, a good big Bible, were now selling for 25 shillings much more in the reach of most people. So they're reducing the cost of the Bible to a point that most people could buy them. The understanding was if people had Bibles in their home, they would be better people. And so on the eve of the Restoration, you see the Bible entering into the homes of America, not just into the churches, but into the homes where people could read the Bibles for themselves. And certainly, one looks at the Restoration as not just a response to revivalism and to the preachers that are contemporary to the time, but to a Bible of their own, where they can read it in their own homes. That's what I mean by the rise of the Holy Bible, the Restoration, that is getting into the homes and the lives of people that beforehand they couldn't afford one. There's a wonderful democratic and individualistic expression that's following in the, in the wake of the Bible dissemination where people are able to see it for themselves. You will see eventually many different faiths coming of that and the flowering of the Restoration or the Reformation, if you will. But it was a joy to have that Bible in their homes. When did the Joseph Smith family get that Bible that Joseph Smith read from? We don't know. We assume it was a great big one. I don't. It was probably one of these small... American Bible Society ones, a very cheap one that was affordable to them. Concurrent with the spread of the Bible across America was the Second Great Awakening, 
or as Joseph Smith would call it, an unusual excitement on the subject of religion. The Second Great Awakening is fundamentally a a Methodist movement. And these great itinerant preachers clinging to their Bibles wherever they went and preaching out of those Bibles, their interpretation, the Second Great Awakening is Bible-dominated. There's no question that the Second Great Awakening gave invitation for that kind of work with their own Bibles, which would lead to answers from God. And Joseph Smith's vision is very much corroborated by the historical reality of the day. The message of the first vision was very different, but the mechanism of the first vision and the provision for a first vision was very much something that many prayed for. Much of our restoration is based on the fact that the King James translation was already there in the church. It was in the church before the Book of Mormon was in the hands of Latter-day Saints. Early Latter-day Saints were believers in the Bible, and their Bible that they used was the King James translation. So in a very important way, the King James translation was is part of the founding of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. The Restoration is as much a story about the Bible as it is about the Book of Mormon. That the two will become one in your hand, as the Book of Mormon prophesies. So in other words, in order, in order to have two become one, you have to have both there. And part of the great story of the unfolding of the Restoration is the rise of the Holy Bible, going clear back to John Wycliffe and William Tyndale and the King James Version of the Bible in 1611 and the step-by-step rise of the Bible into the homes and in the hands of the commoner. Let it not be overlooked the sacred place of the Holy Bible among the Latter-day Saints. There's always a deference to the Bible in the Book of Mormon. And so part of the whole purpose of the Book of Mormon, as Moroni taught Joseph Smith in 1823, as he taught him right out of the Bible, is to raise that Bible up so that it can be one in your hands, so that one can confirm the truth of the other. And to have just the Book of Mormon without the Bible is not complete. The restoration is an equilibrium of Scripture between Bible and Book of Mormon. They're members of the same royal family of Scripture. And the fact that the language of the Book of Mormon was deliberately meant to match the linguistic register and the religious vocabulary of the King James translation means that they are meant to be paired together. And the same, of course, is true of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. So today, even though there are many other good and very useful translations of the Bible available, not only in other languages, but also also in English, the King James translation continues to hold a unique place in our history and in our culture. Just as the Book of Mormon required faith and sacrifice to bring it forth, so too did the Holy Bible. And today, they stand as one in our hands as never before. I'm Glenn Rawson, and thank you. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on what you have listened to, please go to historyofthesaints.org. The History of the Saints team that produced this podcast has also produced numerous books and full-length documentaries on early Latter-day Saint church history and the key figures that made that history. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. This podcast of History of the Saints has been produced by Dennis Lyman and Glenn Rawson. History of the Saints is a 501c3 nonprofit organization.